This episode was recorded in summer 2022. Climate change, extreme weather incidents, and rising sea level. Which impact does the climate change have on our ports? Are they resilient enough? How can solutions look like? I'm Julia Hörnig, Assistant Professor at Erasmus School of Law, and today we ask, what is wrong with maritime trade? Sustainable law talk right from the center of trade, Rotterdam. Welcome to our eighth episode of this podcast, where we try to tackle patterns of trade which developed over centuries and discuss potential solutions. For our eighth episode, I'm more than happy to welcome our guest speaker, Dr. Regina Asariotis. Welcome. Regina Asariotis is Chief of the Policy and Legislation Section in the Division on Technology and Logistics of the UN Conference on Trade and Development, UNCTAD where her work focuses on transport law and policy. This includes work since 2008 on the implications of climate change for international maritime transport and trade, with a focus on climate change impacts and adaptation for seaports and other critical transport infrastructure, including in small island developing states. Before joining UNCTAD in 2001, Regina was a senior lecturer in maritime law at the University of Southampton, where she taught for more than 10 years. She holds a German law degree, an LLM from the University of Southampton, and a PhD from the University of Hamburg. She is also a barrister for England and Wales and attorney at law in Greece, as well as member of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators. The Facts Regina, extreme weather incidents happen more frequently. A massive storm destroyed Caribbean islands. Extreme rains flooded parts of Germany, the Netherlands and Belgium. Besides the injuries and damages to houses, also the economic consequences were severe. Taking the example of the Caribbean, the storm caused a loss of two years of economic activities. The climate change will inevitably lead to considerable economic problems. Regina, as you're part of UNCTAD, you investigated the impact of climate change on the transport sector in general and ports in particular. How much does the climate change cost the global economy already? Well, Julia, thank you very much for, for this uh, initial question. It's very difficult to quantify specifically the cost of climate change, partly because of the uncertainties, partly because of the broad range of impacts. But we have some indications, and you mentioned extreme weather events. Uh, for example, uh, according to Munich Re, one of the uh, top reinsurance companies globally, in 2017, the uh, hurricane season, you will remember this was the hurricanes Maria, Irma, and Harvey, which among oh, yeah. others devastated yeah. the Caribbean region. Uh, the overall cost of natural disasters was 330 billion, much of this uninsured. That was the second highest ever. And in 2021, uh, the cost associated with natural disasters is already 280 billion, almost 60% of which are in uninsured. And this is not really surprising because we have increasingly compelling scientific evidence of increasing climate variability and change and accordingly uh, increasing impacts. This is clear from the Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change, which produced their uh, regular assessment reports, but did a special report on the 1.5 degrees um, limit, which uh, 
as, as you may know, as the listeners may know, is what the global community has agreed to aim for as a limit of global warming. Um, and they have just recently issued their sixth assessment report in 2021 and 2022, which shows that the um, projections are getting worse and worse. So um, the net upshot of this is that we have a lot of losses and economic implications to expect. The World Economic Forum, um, which doesn't occupy itself um, that much with environmental issues normally, in its global risks report, for example, for 2022, uh, classes extreme weather and climate action failure as the most severe risks over the coming 10 years. And we know that extreme weather events will be increasing in frequency and intensity under climate change, um, especially if the emissions aren't drastically cut. So I can, if you're interested, I can give you another few forecasts where, which, which um, illustrate the type of, the extent of the losses that might be associated with, with these types of events. Yeah, that um, would be great. I mean, yes, we, we see this already in Europe and uh, we didn't expect it to be that hot um, during the summer. And yes, it, it, would, it would be great, yes. <laughs> Yes, actually, as you as you mentioned, uh, just as we are as we are speaking, this uh, summer of 2022 is of course marked by extremes, a lot of weather extremes across the world. This is extreme heat waves, but also flooding, low uh, um, river water levels, for example, in the Rhine, uh, landslides, extreme precipitation in other parts of the world. But particularly, heat has been uh, very strong. But to yeah. give you an example, um, one study estimated that by 2100, by the end of the century, global flood damage due to sea level rise and related extreme events alone uh, might amount to up to $27 trillion a year, about 2.8% of what is estimated to be the GDP in 2100. Oh my God. And um, by the same uh, date, also end of the century, Another study estimates that the total value of assets exposed to episodic coastal flooding could increase to 12 to 20 percent of the global G GDP if we don't take effective adaptation action. Also, in the, in the field of shipping, we have some indications. A report has just come out uh, this year, which, which estimates the cost, for, for, uh, the cost of inaction for ports and shipping. And mentions, for example, that global average annual storm damages to ports are at present estimated at roughly 3 billion, but this could go up to 25.3 billion by the end of this century. So this is just, these are just figures and they are just indications, but what I think is very important to understand is it's, it's also very difficult to assess the costs because what, what do you classify as a cost? The rebuilding yeah. costs that doesn't take into account operational disruptions and knock-on effects, um, economic losses, which can be devastating uh, and, and affect uh, trade through supply chains, for example. You, you said that, or well, we, we witnessed this, that these severe weather incidences destroyed infrastructure at different levels. Which part of the infrastructure are hit the most? You, you mentioned the ports, you mentioned supply chain in general. Um, what would you say, which part is at risk the most? 
again, it's difficult to sort of answer this, this directly, but I would say generally coastal infrastructure. I mean, we're focusing in our work particularly on transportation, transport infrastructure, but other critical infrastructure, whatever is located at the coast, uh, faces basically the, the double whammy, if you will, of uh, impacts from sea level rise and extreme sea levels and land-based uh, flooding, and at the same time, uh, extreme heat, for example, intense precipitation, etc. So coastal transport infrastructure and coastal critical infrastructure of any kind is particularly uh, potentially affected. And added to this, this is, of course, um, much of the global population lives very close to the coast or at the coast uh, in some countries, island nations. Um, that, is, that is an obvious one. But if you look at the global picture, um, many of the large urban centers are at the coast. So that is going to be uh, this, this type of infrastructure as, as it is at greatest risk in that sense. Um, but again, it also depends uh, on the specificities of the, of the location and of the impacts that we're talking about. The exposure to particular hazards will play a role in that respect. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we record this podcast for the University of Rotterdam and Rotterdam itself is at, uh, at the coast and is affected by the heat at one side for inland waterway because the Rhine does not have enough water anymore. And on the other side, we have the sea level rise. Um, but speaking of uh, the port of Rotterdam uh, in particular and ports in general, how can we build resilience or how can we prepare ourselves? Again, this was several questions in one. Um, uh, so we can take them by step by step, of course. We, uh, we, we, we basically, first of all, we have to understand what yeah. impacts may arise. And these impacts vary. They vary by the type of sector, by the type of, obviously, by the type of hazard, by the type of sector, by the geographical uh, conditions, uh, elevation, etc. Um, so we have to first understand what the what the impacts are. And if we're looking at the different types of climate hazards, uh, there is, of course, mean sea level rise and increased extreme sea levels. But there's also changes in wave energy, the strength of waves and direction, which for ports, of course, is very important. So you could have the permanent inundation, uh, difficulties birthing, um, difficulties in, in, in transit access, um, overtopping. You can have infrastructure damage, but also massive operational disruptions. And these are enormously costly and they can affect, we, we see at the moment, supply chain disruptions for other reasons as well. But uh, climate and weather related uh, supply chain disruptions will dwarf the costs that are arising for infrastructure damage. So when assessing damage, we tend to look at, at rebuilding costs, but really we have to look at the indirect uh, damages as well. Also, we have to look at the indirect impact. So for example, yeah. changes in, in, um, in uh, supply chains, changes in production locations, for example, agriculture is going to be massively affected and that is going to de de affect the demand for transportation. Yeah. This is an example. Other ha climate hazards uh, will, uh, will, will be affecting different parts of the world in different ways. For example, precipitation in particular, uh, the, the intensity or the change in the intensity of precipitation and extremes um, 
causing flash flooding, for example, could be a big, uh, big problem. Temperature as well. Heat, extreme heat is going to be uh, a problem, I think, across the globe. But also in, um, in, in, in some uh, parts of the world, it's going to lead to permafrost degradation. And that can have localized problems for the facilities located there. But in addition, that's going to also allow a lot of methane to uh, be emitted into the atmosphere, methane that is at present uh, stored in, in permafrost. And methane is sadly a much worse uh, contributor to global warming even than CO2 emissions. And then there is wind. Wind, of course, affects the operation of uh, cranes, for example, and again, navigation when we're talking about uh, ports. So the, um, when you're asking what can we do, we cannot stop, as it were, the, the, the increase of, of sea level. We cannot stop these impacts. Yeah. Um, but the emissions pathways that we globally and collectively take and follow they will have a large effect on the rate and speed of the global warming and the associated uh, impacts. And in the meantime, we need to understand the impacts and prepare by first of all understanding and, and assessing the risk and then taking hopefully effective measures to reduce the risk. And how may these measures look like? It's very difficult, first of all, to give a general advice, of course, um, but also to, uh, to, to look at this as a, as a one-size-fits-all uh, question. First of all, we have to understand that risk is really, in this context, a function, the risk of impact is a function of three factors. These are the hazards, these are changing climatic factors, which in turn are dependent on climate scenarios and on emissions. There is the exposure of infrastructure and operations to these hazards. And there is a vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And that vulnerability depends on the capacity to respond to factors that make, for example, ports prone to damage or losses from these hazards. For example, the availability of technologies or materials for port defenses or for elevation, human and financial resources, uh, policy, legislation, management um, processes, and so on. So uh, it's hazards, exposure, and vulnerability. If one of these factors goes up, then the risk grows. Uh, so because the hazards, and if you, if you have time, I will say a little bit about what we know about the hazards from extreme sea levels and heat for ports. Oh, yes, please, go ahead. But if the hazards are growing up, then what we certainly have to do is to try to reduce exposure what mm -hmm. is in the way of these hazards and the vulnerability. Incredibly interesting. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Well, first, we have to uh, assess exposure at local and facility levels mm -hmm. because uh, the exposure <clears throat> uh, requires risk assessment at, um, at uh, um, a small scale. Um, but again, to, to look at these three factors of, in terms of hazards, uh, the projections, we've done some work on this and we looked at um, extreme sea level projections uh, for ports, for about 3,700 uh, ports. And we looked at the return period under climate change of the one in 100 years extreme sea level event. So this is a common design parameter for port defenses. The uh, port is, is designed normally has long lifespans to withstand, for example, 
um, extreme sea levels uh, that you would expect based on, on past experience about once a century. And what yeah. we found is that even at 1.5 degrees global warming above pre-industrial levels, which unfortunately is expected as soon as in the 2030s, that means less than 10 years from now, this could be happening. Um, so. At that level, uh, we would expect that what used to be a one in 100 years event to be uh, uh, as often as every one to 10 years in many Southern American, uh, African Gulf state ports, um, Southeast Asia and Pacific ports. And if the warming increases to, let's say, three degrees centigrade, and unfortunately that is as dire as a scenario, this is not that unlikely. At the moment, emission pathways indicate we're on track for about 2.5 to 2.7 degrees by the end of the century. But at, at, three, point, uh, at three degrees, uh, if you look at this, the same question, then many ports uh, across the globe will experience the, the one in 100 years extreme sea level event several times per year. So that is, that is quite extraordinary. But to understand what this means for a port at local levels, then you have to look at uh, elevation, for example. You have to look at the, um, the, the connections between components at a port and so on. So you need to do this uh, assessment at uh, facility level. About extreme heat, maybe, if, if, if I could just mention this, we've also yeah, yeah, sure. looked yeah, yeah. at, uh, at um, hazard projections for, for ports uh, for extreme heat. And this is particularly pertinent, I think, this year, sadly. Yeah, um, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> and there again, under uh, 1.5 degrees global warming, the one in 100 years extreme heat event would decrease down to every one to five years in most tropical or subtropical settings. Um, and at three degrees global warming, most global ports would experience this kind of extreme heat event at least every two years. And that has very, heat has particular important implications for health and safety, because at a particular level of heat together with humidity, that's the heat index, it becomes a danger to uh, human health, can be even deadly. Um, yeah. heat and and then you uh, have a staffing issue of course exactly yes. staffing passengers yeah. uh but so, so it's human health uh, but in addition of course it's enormous uh increase in energy needs and yeah. uh and costs and that of course again at the present time is a particular is a particular concern yes understood can you tell us a little bit more about what this means for ports on the ground? So, for example, we looked at uh, the effects of heat and uh, we did this as part of, uh, of, of a project we did in the Caribbean, where we looked at the um, impacts and adaptation for ports and airports in Jamaica and St. Lucia, where we also developed a methodology. And we looked at uh, how many times a year uh, certain operational thresholds would be exceeded. So mm -hmm. the operational threshold, therefore, heat um, indicates that uh, staff working outdoors at ports and airports would be at high risk for five days a year in Jamaica and two days a year in, in St. Lucia. But this could, depending on the climate scenario, increase to 30 and 55 days a year, respectively. And that's important to know in advance so you can prepare accordingly. 
uh, as so you have to reroute and have to replan the entire supply chain, basically. Well, you certainly have to deal with the uh, with the uh, potential of extreme heat. So, you, for example, yeah. you need to spend a lot of money on on cooling, on shade, on brakes, on uh, maybe assistance, um, water supply, and so on. And so the baseline energy requirements um, were estimated here to increase by 4% for 214 days a year and 168 days a year, uh, in, respectively, for, for Jamaica and St. Lucia. So for two-thirds of the year, they would need 4% more energy, even at 1.5 degrees um, global warming above industrial levels, which, as I say, we expect to be reached at uh, at or around 2030. That's and this, this is a big yeah. particular problem because, of course, it doesn't stop there. And if the yeah. trajectories don't change, then the temperature increase at the end of the century will be much larger. And then basically that means that supply chains will eventually break down because if, they, if the port receptions don't work anymore. Yes, then... I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's not... Nothing, nothing is hard and fast, but if you look just at the enormous economic cost that yeah. is associated with a shutdown uh, of a port, a strike, for example, then you get an idea of what the knock-on effects might be and how this can also affect global uh, trade and development. For example, if we uh, consider Hurricane Sandy, yeah. caused over 62 billion losses in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. And that included extensive damage and a week-long shutdown of the US, New York, New Jersey container port. And that's just one example. So one event in this particular case caused $62 billion um, dollars of, of losses. That is not counting the trade-related losses that might arise. So when you say global supply chains, as we see also at the moment, it's not a case of everything breaking down um, comprehensively as it were. Yeah, yeah, no, no, these disruptions, true. they have yeah. a lot of knock-on effects, which sometimes we can't properly assess. And again, at the moment, it's, it's a good example. We hear, for example, if fertilizers are, um, are uh, held up in certain ports, then that will affect agriculture production. That will affect, together with climate change as well, the uh, food supply and the food prices that will affect cost of living and so on. So there are a lot of knock-on effects, which are, to put it mildly, highly uh, undesirable, apart from the direct costs of damage to infrastructure. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. I think we now have a really, really good overview of which impact does climate change have on the infrastructure, the uh, ports in particular. Thank you very much. The legal issues. So coming to the legal part, we have heard a lot about the status quo. And I'm in particular, of course, very, very interested in legislation that aims at combating climate change that is growing. We heard that Biden, for instance, introduced his climate package, and it's now up to be seen whether this is accepted or not. Which rules exist in our context? Thanks for these questions, um, Julia. I think uh, legal and regulatory approaches are going to be very, very important 
uh, going forward, because as we know from all other walks of life as well, uh, legislation is a very powerful tool to implement common policy objectives. People do things if they have to. Um, and so it's, it's going to be very important to direct this. We have some yeah. legislation at the international level. We have, of course, the Paris Climate Agreement, which uh, deals specifically with adaptation and sets out the obligations of states in this respect. Uh, we have other international agreements which are supposed to uh, be part of a broader sustainable development agenda. That is, for example, the Sendai Framework, framework on Disaster Risk Reduction. Um, that is part uh, of the broader international agenda that are part of the sustainable uh, development goals, which you may have heard of. Yeah, of course. Yes. Which is the uh, 2030 sustainable development agenda. And all of this amounts to both policy commitments, but also in part legal requirements. Mm -hmm. Then we have supranational law at the EU level, and that's going to be very important. And we have some examples of national uh, legislation. But whereas we have probably more progress on the policy side, um, strategies, policies, plans, legislation, um, there isn't an awful lot yet, except in some countries. The UK, for example, has a climate law for some years already. And the European Union has enacted a climate law, which is going to be very important as well. Let's start with the EU level. You spoke of some instruments already, which exist and why are policy uh, and strategy acts so important if they are not binding? At the EU level, we have for a number of years, we've got a number of legal instruments which somehow pertain to this, but not having necessarily addressed this directly. But last year in 2021, the European Union adopted a revised but very comprehensive climate change adaptation strategy. And that is very important because the strategy, of course, sets the policy context and it declares an agreed commitment, which then has to be implemented. So it's not binding in the sense uh, that you can uh, claim enforcement, but it is binding in the sense that it expresses these agreed policy commitments. This strategy is uh, in itself very much worth looking at and reading. It explains also the, the motivation and it explains that really what the aim is, is to ensure that the union will be climate resilient by 2050 through measures and actions which transcend policy domains and sectors. So it's going to be cross-cutting, it's basically mainstreaming adaptation into all union action. That's very important. But I think particularly important also for the listeners who may be from the European Union is uh, the legislation. And the legislation, the most important here, is the uh, EU climate law, which is a regulation. It's regulation uh, 2021-1119. That sounds really, really interesting. If I may interrupt you, maybe for the audience that not from the EU, just a very, very brief explanation. We are now going to talk about regulations and directives. That is really, really technical. Regulations apply directly at national level, while directives require national implementations. So that is the basic difference between these two. Sorry, I interrupted you, but I thought it's worth mentioning it. Thank you. No, thank you very much, Julian. And in fact, this is a very important distinction. When you want to implement any, any kind of um, uh, legislation, 
it does depend how this is intended. And as you mentioned, directives, they have to be implemented through national legislation. And there's usually a time lag. And uh, even though there are repercussions for failure to implement a directive, you can't guarantee that it is in force at the national level uh, through the implementing legislation. So there might be proceedings and so on, but that's not good for implementation. Regulations are much more uh, effective in the sense that from the time they are uh, in force, and that's the publication in the official journal, they're directly applicable and effective in all EU member states, so in all uh, states. Now, this EU regulation, which I mentioned, entered into force, I think it was the 29th of July last year, 2021. And for the first time, I think, it sets out a dedicated article on adaptation. I don't think this was part uh, as such of the uh, EU legislation. Mm -hmm. And it's the article five. And if you just allow me, I will just quote something very briefly. Yeah, that would be great, yes. Uh, It says the uh, relevant union institution and member states shall ensure continuous progress in enhancing adaptive capacity, strengthening resilience and reducing vulnerability to climate change in accordance with Article 7 of the Paris Agreement. And then it goes on to uh, highlight that there is an obligation on the union, the institutions and member states to ensure, shall ensure, that policies on adaptation are coherent, mutually supportive, provide co-benefits for sectoral policies and work towards better integration of adaptation in a consistent manner in all policy areas including the socioeconomic and environmental policies and actions, as well in external actions. And it goes on to talk about the need to uh, adopt and implement national adaptation strategies and plans, taking into account the EU adaptation strategy, and based on robust climate change and vulnerability analyses, progress assessment and indicators, and guided by the best available and most recent scientific evidence, there's more in this article, that the Commission will adopt guidelines setting out common principles and practices for the identification, classification, and prudential management of material physical climate risks in all. So it's really uh, comprehensive. It's very comprehensive. And even though it's not uh, very, very specific, the uh, implementation of this is, if you will, supported by an obligation to report Uh, regularly. And then there's going to be an assessment by the commission of the action. So there is a regular monitoring and reporting process envisaged. This is going to start uh, in September 2023, and then every five years thereafter. So this is going to be very important. And there are other legal instruments, which will in turn are affected by this regulation, and all will follow. This sounds far reaching indeed. Can you give us more examples? We have a flood risk directive, which is uh, dates from 2007. And there are different uh, steps uh, of obligations of member states regarding flood risk. But for example, member states have to uh, prepare flood risk assessment maps and management plans. And uh, the latest review of management plans was to take into account of the likely impact of climate change on the occurrence of floods. So that means you have to take the measures to establish the impact. You have to uh, take measures to look at that. There are also some proposed legal instruments underway. We will see if they will be adopted or in which form. But uh, worth mentioning here, uh, for example, proposal for a directive on the resilience of critical entities. And which uh, entities are these? 
these are critical entities to all sorts of infrastructure entities mm-hmm. okay. um, to be defined, but it is supposed to be comprehensive. Um, then there is a regulation on, uh, on EU 10T guidelines. That's the trans-European networks for transport. These are the main arteries, transport or arteries across the European Union. They're covered by these guidelines and the revised guidelines, which are in preparation still, they envisage climate proofing of infrastructure, again, based on latest available best practice and guidance. And the EIA directive, the Environmental Impacts Assessment Directive, the amendment of 2014 to this directive already indicated that projects that are subject to environmental impact assessment, and these are all large infrastructure projects, including, for example, ports, they require vulnerability to climate change to be taken into account as part of the IA. So the, the principle is reflected and will be, I think, more uh, and more reflected in um, legal instruments which, which are relevant at the EU level. Now member states have to keep their words. And uh, we saw this in Germany that the government announced a law that was basically not sufficient according to the uh, constitutional Supreme Court. Now we have uh, the EU looking at member states, looking at their reports and say, please anticipate the risks and don't just complain about what goes wrong afterwards. Yes, as a small parenthesis, maybe one of the big issues is that in the public debate, generally, when one hears about climate change, people focus only on the emissions and the emissions is is critically important. It's not to say it is not, but there is also the issue of the impacts of climate change to which we need to adapt. That's not a matter of choice. It's really upon us. Uh, to protect ourselves. And that isn't happening to the extent that we would expect, especially if you're thinking of infrastructure. Infrastructure has long planning horizons and long lifespans. So you really have to assess and then address future risks to be able to, um, to secure that these infrastructures stay operational. Um, so even better that the EU has now an eye on and tries to push the member states even more. And I, I think it's, yeah. it, it should be, this is now a legal requirement. Yeah. Uh, so this should uh, have an effect on the ground in sort of catalyzing uh, national measures of all sorts. What I wanted to also add, this very important technical guidance that the commission has prepared for the climate proofing of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. This is for the period 2021 to 2027, so for the immediate future. The document which has been published, just to give you an indication, it's 92 pages long. So it's very, very detailed. It contains yeah. a number of annexes which relate to funding, uh, to documentation, to environmental impact assessment and so on, also strategic environmental impact assessment, and basically sort of provide some detail. What is it? That has to be done. So these, this climate proofing of infrastructure in accordance with these technical guidelines is going to be uh, critical for all kinds of projects, infrastructure projects, and also to obtain the requisite funding. And that is also going to affect EU funding for projects outside the EU, I'm, uh, uh, I'm sure. So th- this is a very important step, I think, to get more specific, because it's one thing to say generally shall take into account the impacts of climate change, but how do you go about this? And this technical guidance, I think, uh, will play a very important role in helping 
stakeholders on the ground to take the measures that they need to. Thank you very much. I'm very, very happy that we can at least close the second part with, with good news. It sounds like really consistent and thoughtful measures that are implemented by the European Union. And I hope that uh, the member states will follow and will not play, play games, pretend that we have time, which we don't. Thank you very much. The Outlook. So coming to our last part, and I'm really looking forward to hear more solutions, not only on the regulatory level. We discussed the severe impact of climate change on trade and infrastructure and legal instruments that aim at combating the consequences or even at stopping or slowing down climate change. How can the future look like? What are the necessary steps? Uh, thank you, Julia. Yes, on the point of stopping climate change, this goes, of course, to reducing uh, or the, 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 the accelerated global warming that we're experiencing. So that has to do with emissions. And maybe as a uh, postscript, I should also say the EU climate law does deal, of course, with emissions as well and yes. is uh, establishing a goal for net zero by 2050. Yeah, we, we had already one uh, episode on at least the emissions uh, stemming from shipping. There we touched upon it at least slightly. And yes, of course, and there will also one uh, will be one episode on the emissions themselves. So thank you for mentioning this. Definitely. Yes, good, good, good. I just wanted, yeah. I thought it was remiss <laughs> not to mention this. Um, definitely, definitely. Thank you. But if we're talking about action needed to adapt and build resilience, we have done a lot of work on this over the last uh, more than 10 years, actually, with a particular focus on ports and given the um, focus of our organization, also with a view to the global uh, trading and development um, system and developing countries, the, the perspective of developing countries that often are at the front line of impacts, but have particularly Uh, low capacity and are therefore particularly vulnerable. Um, if you remember, I had said uh, earlier that risk is a function really of hazards, exposure and vulnerability. So we have to try to reduce exposure. For that, we have to assess it at local levels. So that's one thing we need to do risk assessment at local uh, and facility levels. That's going to yes. be very important. And to reduce vulnerability, we have to look at ways how we can respond and that is uh, the whole gamut that includes governance policies and legislation materials human capacity and of course structural hard measures infrastructure measures for example but to summarize really the types of things that are needed the um, marrakesh partnership for global climate actions is part of the unf triple c process has developed some milestones for adaptation in, in transport for transport infrastructure. And this envisages, among others, that by 2030, critical transport infrastructure, like ports, is climate resilient to at least 2050. So pr prospectively, if you will, uh, climate resilient. To get there, we need to have high quality risk and vulnerability assessments. And that means if, to, I, yeah. if I just um, may interrupt you there, what does resilience mean in this way? Resilience, as it were, in, 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 uh, if you juxtapose this with adaptation, yeah. resilience focuses on the ability to bounce back after a disruption. So resilience is aimed 
at better coping with impacts, recovering from impacts, and, and minimizing any disruptions that arise. So there is... But are there any thresholds, something like this? No, I mean, and in, 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 you know, in the terminology, there are uh, terms defined by, for example, the Intergovernmental Panel on, on Climate Change, but this is not necessarily um, consistently applied. So resilience is an ability to withstand the sort of the degree of, of impacts or to better cope with the impacts. And adaptation is a more wholesale uh, preparation to be prepared for certain impacts. But it's both of these together. Mm -hmm. And again, there are no hard and fast rules. Uh, sometimes you don't need, uh, for example, hard measures uh, like infrastructure uh, construction or, or uh, very capital intensive measures. Sometimes very small design changes might make a big difference. For example, if a bridge is uh, destroyed uh, and the, if you can quickly rebuild it, then any kind of uh, disruption is going to be minimized to, yeah. to take one, one example. So this, this has to do also with uh, design standards, for example, with uh, measures which uh, early warning systems would be a very important example that would increase uh, resilience. But Because, speaking of this mm -hmm. early warning systems, mm -hmm. um, how does this then work? I mean, okay, then we know that uh, hazard is coming, Uh, at least the port workers, what would be at a port the measures they take then? Do they shut down uh, gates? It, Do depends. They... it depends what it is. Uh, for example, if we're talking about, uh, let's say, a storm, mm -hmm. uh, you would, for example, secure equipment that might be affected. You know, then you, yeah. you avoid losing that equipment, for example. Or um, if you have flooding, You can evacuate people and uh, equipment to avoid damaging this. So, it, you know, one, it's, it's not something where you can say do this or do that in one word, but an important role here plays specific guidance that has been developed for the industry. So let me just mention a couple of these. I mean, we, I mentioned we need risk assessment because that is going to guide you in terms of the impacts, you understand the impacts better and how your risk uh, might develop under climate change so that you can take the appropriate measures and prioritize your resources. Because the worst thing we can do is just to um, take knee-jerk reactions and just build a wall somewhere that is maladaptation that might make the situation worse. So we have to improve data, both the collection and the availability. We have to plan early. Uh, adopt a systems approach and, and certainly avoid maladaptation or over-engineering, even inadvertent. So this is why good data is important and good uh, facility level assessments. And we have to mainstream these types of consideration, climate change consideration, into all port infrastructure planning and operational process, like, like other factors uh, too, so that it's not segmented and it's just the plan, but that this is part of the as it were, day-to-day -day, uh, procedures and feeds into planning and operations. So you need funding for that. And that is a problem, certainly in, in, in the developing world, that's a big problem. Um, and then we have to, uh, the two different paces again. Yes, exactly. Because uh, developing countries do need uh, capacity building that is both human resources at local uh, levels, but also better access to affordable climate finance. 
uh, and that is very much lagging behind. Um, there's still very little uh, climate finance being made available, especially for adaptation. And very often this is on the basis of loans, which is different from grants because it increases debt burdens further. So that is a, that is a big issue for some parts of the world, developing countries. And to come back to the guidance for ports, the World Association for Waterborne Infrastructure, Piang, they have done a lot of work on this and they have uh, published uh, very detailed uh, industry guidance for waterborne uh, infrastructure, um, which, which will be very helpful to stakeholders on the ground. They have also now published a technical note on decision-making under uncertainties. There is ISO, there are some ISO standards now out on climate change adaptation planning and risk assessment and other methodological tools, uh, for example, like a methodology which uh, we developed as part of a project which we did in the Caribbean, um, sitsport-climateadapt.ankta.org, uh, if anybody wants to have a look at that. Um, but more generally, yeah, we try just, to to include the link in the description of the podcast. Good, that is very nice. Take it. <laughs> we hope that it's going to be useful, and we've done a lot of work on this, so uh, people can look up on on our website. You know, much of what I've been talking about in in, in some greater detail, and, and yeah, especially these. Uh, sorry, but especially these guidelines. I mean, if if there is a matter of urgency and you have to act now because you get this alarm, then it's even better if you have a, a good, well thought through guideline. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It has to be well thought through. That's the that's the the the, the emphasis. Um, many years ago, when we did our very first meeting, one of the um, keynote speakers there who had been uh, instrumental in developing the first uh, US climate change adaptation strategy. He said, prepare for known impacts now. So the, the point is, we don't just think, what do we have to change? And what, what should we, what's the plan, the big adaptation plan, but just consider what are the types of issues that you already notice and prepare for, for those. Uh, when you have to want to protect your house against burglars, First thing is you close the windows and the doors. Uh, yes, before, it starts before with the simple in. things. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and so it, the the one thing that's why mainstreaming is so important because it really what is necessary is a shift in focus so that yeah. people take this into account as a business risk, not as an environmental issue, which maybe is only of interest to some uh, individuals in a company, for example that deal with uh, environmental impacts. Uh, yeah, but if, I mean, if, if, we, if we have a look at how long it takes to build an app, I mean, that's, that's incredible. And then they are getting destroyed overnight by these hazards. So, exactly. But to, to avoid that they are getting destroyed yes, overnight, yeah. it's important to plan ahead and to plan early. And this is why really the, the big message here is It's all hands on deck. There's really no time to lose because the projections, unfortunately, this is not scaremongering. The projections yeah. are getting worse and worse. And we are all living through this year, for example, which illustrates, I mean, we see it now. Uh, and um, as you know, sometimes there is a difficulty associating any one particular event with climate change, although some progress has been made in attributing that. And there have been just recent studies making it clear that the vast majority of extreme events are made significantly more likely because of climate change. But looking forward, there's no question 
that this, what we're seeing now is going to be affecting us uh, much more in the future. So this is why, given the long lifespans and planning horizons of infrastructure for that particular type of issue, we, we really have to move very fast. And that addresses that, that goes to everybody involved, including yeah. the stakeholders on the ground and the and the policymakers and policies. You mentioned early warning system. We got we talked about something else. The UN Secretary General announced in March of this year that within five years, all uh, citizens of the world should be protected by early warning systems. And the World Meteorological Organization is working on an action plan to this effect. But once you have an early warning system, then you can take measures to minimize the damage and losses, also the human losses, for example, yeah. early evacuation. And yeah. there is one project I know of called ECFAS, which is funded by the European Commission, and they're working on a proof of concept for a, for a marine flood early warning system, which uh, isn't yet in place for the European area. So yeah. this is going to be, um, you know, one step in this direction, for example. Thank you for this. I interested, of course, in sea level rise itself. I mean, this podcast, again, is for the University of Rotterdam. And of course, the Netherlands have mm -hmm. an issue with the sea level rise. And it is a major threat to the country as a whole. Are there any measures? Well, we, we spoke about the immediate uh, hazards. We spoke about waves. We spoke about extreme weather incidences. But when I have a look at sea level rise, constant sea level rise, is there a way how design can be changed to combat sea level rise, relocation, for instance? Does support necessarily have to be always on land? Well, uh, first of all, speaking of Rotterdam, uh, the Netherlands, of course, has a, has a big problem with sea level rise because it's yeah. below sea level. Yeah. Um, I, and it's one of the countries uh, which has been leading internationally, of course, in this respect. The port of Rotterdam specifically is, I think, uh, climate resilient and is, is even more climate resilient than any other part uh, of the country. So this this would be the place of refuge maybe for the city of Rotterdam in, in certain <laughs> cases. And this, of course, the Netherlands is also a wealthy country, uh, yeah. just like Japan, which is very experienced, so can take capital intensive measures. You mentioned relocation. Now, obviously, a port has to be at the land-sea interface. Yeah. So, relocation, uh, there is a limited possibility to relocate ports. There is uh, the possibility in some cases to elevate ports. And this is being done in small parts in, in Asia, for example, gradually in various places, very low key measures, but they are slowly, slowly uh, elevating the port. There were also plans in the United States, the Gulf of uh, the port of Gulfport had planned to elevate the port by 25 uh, feet in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. That's a lot. But that is a lot. And uh, from what I understand from collaborators there, after some years, the experience had receded maybe a little bit into the background and uh, they didn't follow these plans then uh, through elevation. But ele elevation is, of course, uh, very expensive. There are breakwaters, there's uh, physical defenses. And yeah. uh, sometimes, as I say, it's a matter of just looking where does a vulnerability exist? For example, if you have vulnerable equipment, you might want to elevate that equipment into, into different locations. We heard some years ago from a study in the United States at the um, US Navy station Norfolk, where all their military 
naval assets are, um, they looked at the, um, they made a network analysis and they found that because the um, electricity generation for a very expensive was located in a, in a place where it was very prone to flooding, that uh, very expensive asset was at risk. So if you understand, but you have to look in detail, and this is why risk assessment at local levels is so important, effective risk assessment, you have yeah. to look at whether, for instance, uh, components that are particularly vulnerable can be moved to avoid network disruptions and to, um, to ensure the integrity of systems. And you have to uh, remember that a port isn't, of course, acting in isolation. So yeah, the entire the hinterland, hinterland Exactly, network, yeah. the hinterland transport, they're often the, the port cities, uh, yeah. because many of the large ports are amongst the, the largest urban centers uh, in the world. But there is one of the difficulty comes in also the policy making and the, and the legislation is sometimes a bit complex because you have to interact with different entities, its port ownership structure and regulation and authorities. So that is going to be very important to have all stakeholders, public and private involved in, in this effort. Apart from what we've already talked about, uh, what would also be very important in approaching this is uh, to consider ecosystem approaches to adaptation because there are co-benefits. There is uh, the benefit, of course, to the environment, but also to the structure. So to give you an example, if you have uh, seagrasses, not in front of a port, but to, to give you an example of beach erosion, and the beach, of course, can be an effective protection along the coastline for, uh, for a port as well. If you have, for example, seagrasses, they attenuate the waves and they will decrease the risk of erosion so they will mitigate the impact so this is another you know consideration and there are many many others so we don't have time now to talk about this but ecosystem approaches are important because they are sort of no no regret options yes um, in 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 all directions and one one last point that is worth mentioning unfortunately on adaptation and resilience building failure is not an option no, definitely. Not. Unfortunately, we, we will not be able to, even if we reduce emissions drastically, we will not be able to um, avoid some of the types of impacts that we're feeling now. All we can do is to prepare as best we can and as concerns emission to do our utmost to make sure the temperature increase stops at a certain level, which is considered manageable, which yeah. is as close as possible to 1.5 degrees. That is a perfect ending. Thank you very much. Um, it was really a pleasure uh, to talk to you and learn about everything related to this topic. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Julia, for the very kind invitation. I hope your listeners have found this uh, of interest. And um, as I mentioned, you can find more information if they're interested also on our website. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. For the audience, I hope you liked the talk. Please check out the link we will put in the description. Stay curious and stay tuned and hear you next time. Thank you very much.